a quote from someone that probably many of you haven't heard of. He's a very old theologian from the 300s. John Chrysostom said this, You are but a poor soldier of Christ if you think you can overcome without fighting. And suppose you can have the crown without the conflict. And just even the thought of that, if you think you can overcome without fighting, if you can have the crown without any conflict, that in itself really is a summation of this chapter. It's a, it's a summation in that humanistically, we're gonna, we, we think in our heads, if there's a battle, we must fight. If we are going to take over something, if we are going to be crowned something, that means we have to, in a sense, battle for it, be embattled over it, and come out as the victor. We're going to see that it's not all about fleshly abilities, but there's a major spiritual component to this entire life that we live in faith in Christ. Our enemies are constantly waging war against us. They are trying to keep us from claiming our inheritance in Christ. If you haven't noticed, the enemy, Satan, doesn't like the church. Doesn't like me, doesn't like you if you follow after Christ, if he is your Lord and your Savior. Why? Because we haven't chosen his side. We haven't chosen him. We've chosen the Lord, and he doesn't like that. He doesn't like that you're sitting there listening as part of the church now. He doesn't like that I'm here speaking being obedient to him now. I want to read real quick a couple verses. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says this. And you, you, and me, us, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and in sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the enemy, our adversary, Satan, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. The world, the flesh, the devil, Satan, they are all united against Christ and his people, just as the nations of Canaan we're united against Joshua and the Jewish people. Genesis 3.15, first mention of the gospel. At that point, God declares war on Satan. And one day, he will return. He will declare the victory when he comes as conqueror in Revelation 19. And when he comes to establish his kingdom, he will declare victory. Colossians 2.13 and 15 say this. And you, being dead in your trespasses, that's being spiritually dead because of our sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, our flesh not being given over to Christ, living for our own desires, not living for Him, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. 
Now, if you eliminate the militant, if you eliminate kind of the military or the, the different campaigns and the, the different wars of the Bible and of the Christian faith, then you must abandon the cross. It was on the cross that Jesus won. He had victory. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. It was on the cross. So if you want to remove, in a sense, this, the, the, the warring side of the Scripture, the warring side of this Christian life, you have to remove the cross. Because that's where Satan was defeated. That's where death was defeated. And it was on the victory and the cross that we now have eternal life with Christ forever with Him. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 say this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the plans of He is very deceptive in what he does. He's very cunning in what he does. He's very good at what he does. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to put on the armor so that we can stand against his, his attacks and his plans. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, <coughs> and against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Flipping over a few pages, go to the left, 2 Corinthians 10.4 says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We do not fight with fleshly things. But they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. In your life, in my life, in the Christian faith, we're fighting a spiritual war. And you don't fight a spiritual war with fleshly or earthly or tangible things. Like we've mentioned with Joshua, like we've seen in other places in the scripture, you fight a spiritual battle on your knees. Now, I'm going to sound real corny, real quick, real cheesy for a moment, but that concept of fighting a battle on our knees, it makes me think if you know of them, the 80s and 90s Christian rock band Petra. They had a song, it was, get on your knees and fight like a man. And obviously it was this heavy synth and very 80s and 90s song. But the, the thought behind it, get on your knees and fight like a man. That actually has some power behind it. Because truly that is the source, that is the place of strength when we are fighting a spiritual battle. It's submitting the flesh, it's, it's putting down the flesh, it's acknowledging that the spirit that is within us, the Lord who is living within us, and in a sense, giving ourselves over to Him and allowing Him to fight for us. The Christian's warfare is not against flesh. It's not against, again, things that are tangible. But it's against enemies in the spiritual realm. The weapons that we use have to be then spiritual. Israel's victory at Jericho. We're going to look at three different components and I'll make it really easy for you. It's the before, the during, and the after. We're going to look at three components of this battle. We're going to look at how they apply the victory that they experience to our lives today. And hopefully, no matter what challenges are in front of you, no matter what confrontation is in front of you, hopefully you'll be able to apply these principles to your life and live in the victory that we already have. So the first one, the first kind of principle is before the challenge... And it's remembering that you fight from victory, not for victory. Remember that you fight from victory. You don't fight 
for victory. I'm going to read through the first five verses, and then we'll walk our way through it. So verse 1, now Jericho. Now, I want to pause real quick. I know we haven't even really gotten into the text, and I want to stop real quick. Remember, the last time when we talked about in chapter 5, at the end of it, the commander of the army of the Lord, Jesus, he came and he spoke to Joshua. Okay? He came and met with him, and he says, now as a commander of the army of the Lord, take off your sandal where you're standing in this holy ground. Joshua did so. Remember, it's that guy that Joshua's like, are you for us? Or are you for our enemy? And the guy said, no, I'm, I fight for God. During that, enc- that encounter, during that exchange, we jumped right into to chapter 6, now Jericho. It gives us an idea that it was an immediate thing in Joshua's life. He was right before Jericho. He wasn't far away. It wasn't a, a journey to get there. He was there. He was in the plains of Jericho. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. As always, Jericho would close his gates at night. Most cities in that time, they would shut up their gates at night, protect the city, protect the people. During the day, the gates would be open. The, she- the, the, the shepherds, the flocks, the people would go out and do their work. And then at night, they would all come into the city. Then they would close the gates and the walls would be shut up so the people would be protected. But it says, because of the children of Israel, no one went out and no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, look, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. Again, I'm going to pause because verse 2, we're going to look at it a little bit more in depth, but we have to make mention of it. See, I have given Jericho, past tense. The physical battle is already done. So, right away in the, in the second verse, if the physical battle is already done, what does that tell us about the rest of this chapter? Is the war that they are going to be fighting a physical war? No, it isn't. Spoiler alert, it's not a physical battle. The war is done. But now the war that is going to be raging within the hearts of the men and women, that battle is active. So he says, You shall march around the city, all you men of war, you shall go around at once. This you will shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with a ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout, shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat. Another way of saying that is to fall down under it. It's going to collapse on itself. And the people shall go up, every man straight before him. So right away, the Christian believer, you, me, the body of Christ, we stand in a position of guaranteed victory because Jesus Christ has already defeated every spiritual enemy. Not only did Jesus defeat Satan in the wilderness, you can see that in Matthew 4, but also in Matthew 12, we see that he defeated Satan during his earthly ministry. Colossians 2 told us already, we already read it, that he defeated Satan while on the cross. In Ephesians 1, we see that his 
even his ascension back up into heaven was a defeat against the enemy. As Jesus intercedes or prays for his people in heaven, he helps us mature and accomplish his will. And as we should all be reminded, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, there's no one or nothing that can ever be against you. And he has already defeated the enemy on every level. We do not fight for victory. We fight from a place of victory. So here within these first five verses, because to have a three-point message, within a three-point message, you're really spiritual. So here's sub-point number one. We first see the fear of the Lord in verse 1. Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. The land of Canaan was divided into a number of city-states. What we're going to see here, this is the beginning of the militant campaign of Joshua. It's the divide and conquer. They're going to come into the promised land, split it in half, and then conquer north and south. And so they're going to divide and conquer the land. And each city-state was ruled by a king. If you want to read ahead, Joshua chapter 12, verses 9 to 24, gives us the lists of all the kings of all the different cities. Not all the cities were the same size. Some were a little bit bigger, like Jericho. Others were smaller, like what we read about in chapter 7, the city of Ai. And now excavations at Jericho, they, they kind of show, they kind of indicate that it kind of covered anywhere from 8 to 10 acres. And remember, it had a double wall, a 10-foot wall, in, an interior 10-foot wall, a 15-foot space, then a 15-foot outer wall. And it covered about 10 acres. So it was a decent city for that time. And it was the sight of cities like Jericho that back in Numbers 13 convinced 10 of the Jewish spies that Israel could never conquer the land. However, the news of Israel's exodus from Egypt and the recent victories east of the Jordan had already spread into Canaan. If you remember back as we talked about this in earlier chapters, remember it says that their hearts were melting the inhabitants of Jericho, the Canaanites, their hearts were melting. They were in so much fear. Now, Exodus 23, 27 says this. It says, this is the Lord speaking. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people of whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. We're seeing a fulfillment of what the Lord spoke back in Exodus. That his fear is gone before the Israelites. The Canaanites are in a place of, of they're, they're trembling. They're shaking in fear. Now, it was said this of Mary, Queen of Scots. If you want to do some historical research. John Knox, he was a Scottish reformer. Great little study to look at his impact in Scotland during the, the Reformation time. But it was said that Mary, Queen of Scots, feared John Knox's prayer more than she feared any enemy army. <coughs> Excuse me. Is society today afraid of what God's people may do? Is the world around you, around us, are they afraid of what the God of the Israelites may or may not do? Sadly, probably not. And I think it's mainly because the church hasn't done much to display the power of God to a skeptical world. And I think that's a hard thing for us to hear, but I think it's something we need to hear. 
the Israelites, these two million people, were doing crazy things because of the faith they had in God. Today, you and I have so much more available to us. Not only do we have the whole counsel of God, but we have devices and technology that allow us to research and listen to the greatest theologians ever. And yet, I don't, I don't see the church doing as much today as it was doing New Testament, Old Testament, pick, take your pick. The church is no longer terrible as an army with banners as described in the Song of Songs in chapter 6. I think in a lot of ways, the church is so much like the world that the world takes little notice of what we're doing. We imitate the world's methods. We cater to the world's appetites, to what their desires are. We seek out the world's approval. We measure what we do according to the standards of the world. We look at these worldly examples of, of, of either production or of public speaking or of, of reaching people, of, of you name it, and we try to bring those practices into the church. I, I, I got to be honest, one of my least favorite words in the church is tolerance. And I, I, I want to be very sensitive, but I also want to be very truthful. The gospel is an offensive thing. In today's world, the gospel brings the offense of telling people how they should live. We live in a world where you don't tell me how to live. I'll tell me how to live. Because my truth is right for me and your truth is right for you. And just leave it at that. But there's a bigger truth. It's God's truth. Our creator, our redeemer, our sanctifier, our friend, our savior, our heavenly father. Is it any wonder that we don't gain the world's respect? But not so with Joshua and Israel. They were a conquering people who made no compromise with the enemy, but they completely and implicitly trusted God to give them the victory. Completely trusted Him. We're going to see that in how they live, just in this chapter. The second thing we see in this first section we see in verse 2, the promise of the Lord. See, I have given Jericho into your hand. It is possible that the Lord spoke these words to Joshua when he confronted him at the end of chapter 5. It could have been, depending on where the translators decide to make the chapter break. But again, the tense of the verb is the most important thing. I have given Jericho. The victory is already won. All Joshua and his people had to do was to claim and to live out in obedience the promise of the Lord. Victorious Christians are people who know the promises of God because they spend time meditating on the Word of God. They believe the promises of the Word of God. And they reckon on these promises and obey what God tells them to do. Now that word reckon, it means to count as though it is true in your life what God is telling you in His Word. Christ has conquered the world. He has conquered the flesh. He has conquered the devil. And if we reckon or if we count it as true, we can conquer through Him. It is completely possible to believe a promise and still not reckon on it and, and obey the Lord. 
Now, I'll use an example. It's probably going to be a little dated now, but I'm sure some of you still write checks. I still get checks. I have a birthday every year. I get a check. Believing a promise is like accepting a check from someone. But reckoning is like signing the check and cashing it. I am acting out on the belief that this is good, that this is for me, that this is right. So I can accept it, but until I sign it or I deposit it and cash it, I'm not really believing that it's good. I'm not really believing it until I do something with it. So if you believe, and if you say you believe what this text says, we should be doing something with it. So we have the fear of the Lord in verse 1. We have the promise of the Lord in verse 2. And then verses 3 to 5, we have the instructions of the Lord. And really, verses 3 through 5, they're just the instructions on what they're supposed to do. No situation is too great for the Lord to handle. Think of the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, Philip said, where are we going to buy bread? What are we going to do so that all these people can eat? Well, the gospel writer John, he actually adds something into the story that I love. He says this, he says, But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. God knows what he's going to do. God always knows what's going to happen. Our responsibility is to wait for him to tell us all we need to know and then obey it. That's it. God, I want to know my five-year plan. How about here's what you're supposed to do the next five minutes? Do that. But God, I want to know what I'm doing next year. How about what are you doing next hour? Take what he gives you and obediently do it. God's plan for the conquest of Jericho was very foolish. But guess what? It worked. Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 9 says this. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. A New Testament version or equivalent of this. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. I am so thankful that God's wisdom is far above ours. That He delights in using people and plans that seem completely foolish to the world. Here, it's Joshua with trumpets. In Judges 7, it was Gideon with torches and pitchers. 1 Samuel 17, it was David with a sling. God delights in using weakness and foolishness to defeat His enemies and glorify His name. And I'm so thankful for that because that means He could use me. <laughs> if He's going to use the foolish things of the world, I'm in front of the line. God's instructions were that the armed men were to march around Jericho once a day for six days, followed by the seven priests, each blowing a trumpet. And the priest carrying the Ark of the Lord would come next, and the rear guard would complete the procession. And during these six days, the only noise that was permitted were the sound of the trumpets. And on the seventh day of the procession, they would march around seven times, and then the priest would give a long blast on the trumpets, and then the nation, the Israelites, would all shout. God would then, God would then cause the walls to fall down flat. 
That was the plan. That was the battle plan. Here we go around the mulberry bush of Jericho for six days, once a day, seven times on the last day, blow some horns and scream, and you win. That was the plan. Nothing else. Joshua is known as one of the greatest military leaders of the ancient world, and he's even used today as, as an example of military strategy in, in some places. This was his first war, and this was the battle plan. Now, I love looking at, again, the little nuances of Scripture. And here it says that they're going to have a blast, that they're going to use the ram's horn. Now, in, in the Israelite camp, they had two types of horns. One was a silver trumpet, and one was a ram's horn or a shofar. Now, the silver trumpet, those were used for more like a kind of official governmental declarative aspects of, of camp living. You know, they're going to declare war on a city. They would use the silver trumpets. They would have some type of governmental, practical action happening. They would use the silver trumpets. The religious ceremonies, the spiritual component of the camp, were signified by the using of the shofar, the ram's horn. So here, the priests were using ram's horns, signifying or showing that this was not a military campaign, a military event, a governing or a governmental event. This was a spiritual event. This battle was not a practical, physical battle. It was a spiritual battle. God's people today, we can march in a triumphal procession in our lives because the victory of Jesus has already happened. We can live in victory and we can march through this life in victory declaring His victory because He's already won just like He's already won here. We all should be living like victors, not victims. We are victors. We are not victims in this life. Yes, this life and the enemy will do horrible things to us. But if we truly believe what we read here, we are victors. We have victory in Christ. And the result was that the wall of the city would fall down flat. That was God's promise. And His promises never fail. Now one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Joshua is actually over in uh, chapter 21, verse 45. It says this, Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. All came to pass. Not some, not most. Not a little. All came to pass that he said. And when you look at the, the, this book, when you look at the narrative of the life of Joshua, when you see all that they did, you see all that they went up against and that everything came to pass, God's got this today, everyone. He really does. He's got this. Everything that he promises will happen. So before the, the battle... Remember, you are fighting from victory, not for victory. The victory is already had. During the challenge, second component, remember that you overcome the enemy by faith. Remember, this is a spiritual battle. It is not a physical battle. There are no swords, there are no shields, there are no spears, there's no siege weapons, there's no ramps. 
building up to climb over the wall. There's no battering rams. There's nothing physical about this battle. The only physical component is by faith putting one foot in front of the other as they walk around these walls for six days and then seven times on the seventh. That's it. So verses 6 to 16, next big section, and then we'll walk our way through it. Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns, shofars, before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, so priests, now people, proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Lord, before the Ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and then the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout. Then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city going around at once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp, and Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. Then the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Real quick, look over at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 and 31 says this, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, by faith, after they were encircled for seven days. And then verse 31, we're going to get to this, also by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So faith, the wielding of faith. I hope you can kind of begin to see and knit together, piece together why we wield faith. Faith is a mighty weapon that we all need to be taking hold of and applying into our lives. Another verse about our faith, 1 John 5, 4 says this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Let me say that again. Whatever is born of God, so whatever comes of God, wins. Okay? And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So let's look at that. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So the things that overcome the world come from God. The second sentence, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. So it's already overcome the world. It has victory, which means it's from God. And what is it? It's our faith. Our faith already has victory because it's come from God. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Look at the Israelites. They have been given one demonstration after another, proving that God's word and God's power can be trusted. The Red Sea. 
destroying the Egyptian army, caring for his people in the wilderness, defeating great kings in the wilderness, giving Israel their land, opening the Jordan River, bringing them safely into the promised land. And yet, they had problems believing. In verse 6, we see that Joshua first shared the Lord's plan with the priests. It was important that the ark of the Lord was in its proper place, for it represented the presence of the Lord with the people. And when Israel crossed the river, the account mentions the ark 16 times. Back in Joshua 3, 16 times. Here, the ark is mentioned 8 times, just in these 10 verses. Israel could march, and the priests, they could blow the trumpets all day until they passed out. But if the Lord wasn't with them, there was no victory. The Lord's got to be with us for us to have victory. When we accept God's plan, we invite His presence in to that plan, and that guarantees the victory. When we put aside ourselves, we invite Him into what's happening in our lives, He will then assure the victory. After he told the priests in verse 7, then Joshua told the soldiers. He probably didn't enlist the entire army. That would have been way too many people. The census back in Numbers, it actually tells us that there were over 600,000 men able to bear arms. So a 600,000 man army circling a city about 8 to 10 acres. Now, people, theologians and archaeologists would say to walk around in a procession was about 45 minutes to an hour. And if you had 600,000 men, you would probably get to a point where the first person or the first group as they would be walking around, they would get to the end before the end of the group of those 600,000 men came up. So there's a good opportunity or a good chance that the entire men of war did not march. And then when the walls fell down, a little bit more evidence to it. Joshua certainly didn't need hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men to rush in and overcome the people. They probably would have been freaked out by these collapsing walls. And also the soldiers, the Israelites, they would have been falling all over each other. So probably not the full 600,000. There were over 2 million people in the entire nation of Israel. And marching all of them around the city of Jericho would have been very time-consuming and very dangerous. So the people, no doubt, watched in silence, probably from Gilgal, from the camp, and then participated in the great shout on the seventh day. So again, we have the plan. <coughs> Walk around in a circle and be quiet for six times. And then do seven of those circles and then yell with the trumpets. Verse 12 gives, a, gives us a very important lesson of leadership. It says, then Joshua, and Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. It is very important that leaders receive their orders from the Lord, and that those who follow obey those instructions from the Lord. We see that a lot about Joshua's life. He rose early in the morning. Now, I'll be honest, I rise early in the morning because I got a toddler, not always by choice. But there is something special about setting aside the time before your day starts. Again, denying the flesh, denying what I want, putting that aside, get up a little extra early and spend time with the Lord and ask Him, what does He have for you that day? The crossing of the Jordan and now the conquest of Jericho, they were miracles of faith. 
And Joshua and the people listened to God's orders, believed them, and obeyed, and God did the rest. The activities of this week, remember, once a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh. The activities of the week, they are a test of the Jewish people's faith and patience. They tested the Israelites in their faith and their patience. There was probably some of them that were anxious. They just wanted to fight. They just wanted to battle. They wanted to rush the gates. They wanted to ram down the gates, climb over the walls, and just fight. I think, though, after six days of walking around this city, they got to know those walls pretty well. They could probably look up, see probably the archers on the walls, see the men of Jericho kind of scratching their heads, wondering what's going on as the tension is building as these men are walking around day after day. And I really think that after six days of walking around the city, it was probably a good portion of those men that, that were thinking, this can't be done. We can't do this. There's no hope. They begin to get more and more de depressed and discouraged. Impatience was one of Israel's continual sins. And God wanted them to learn patient obedience. It's through faith and patience that we inherit what He has promised. God's never in a hurry. God's never late. He knows what He's doing. His timing's never off. So they had to grow in their, their patient obedience. Now, if the timeline was a test of their patience, the direction to be silent was probably a test of their self-control. James tells us when Pastor Jim gets continues next week and then for the following weeks, he'll get to it. James tells us that people who can't control their tongues can't control their bodies. That's actually in the second verse of, of chapter 3. And what good are soldiers, are men of war, if their bodies, if their flesh is not disciplined. So it's one of those moments where we get to bring in, it's another one of my favorite verses, it's not going to be on the slides, but it's another one of my favorite verses, it's Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God, be still. Just that in itself, those two words, be still, hard, difficult, sometimes uncomfortable. Sometimes we don't know what to do with ourselves if we're just still. But be still in what? Know that I am God. How do you think the people of Jericho responded to this daily procession? The first day they probably got frightened. They were probably expecting this army to besiege the city. But they never built their siege ramps. They never brought their battering rams. And when the Israelites returned back to their camp, the people of Jericho probably felt very relieved. They knew that the God of the Israelites was a God of wonders. And they probably were wondering, what's Jehovah? What's this God going to do to us? And then on the seventh days, they circled seven times. That tension within the city must have begun to increase more and more and more. Until that fear, once again, was, was crippling, was gripping them so tight. And then we're going to have a blast of the trumpets, a shout of the people, and then these walls are going to collapse. 
And at that point, all the Israelites had to do was literally run in over the rubble and take the city. It actually reminds me of a a, a quote a guy, Philip Brooks, said. Again, this isn't going to be on the screen, so I'll say it twice. He says this, Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be better men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your power. Pray for power equal to your tasks. Let me say that again. Do not pray for an easy life. Pray to be a better person. Do not pray for tasks or assignments equal to your abilities, equal to your power. Pray for power that is equal to your tasks. The only way to grow in faith is to accept new challenges and to trust God to give you victory. It's the only way to grow in our faith. It is a muscle. You have to use it and exercise it. You have to to work it out for it to grow and for it to be strengthened. And the only way to do that is to accept new challenges in life. To trust God to give you that victory that He has already promised. To reckon on it and to believe in it. So before the battle, remember, we are fighting from a place of victory, not for victory. During the battle, the only way to defeat the enemy is with faith. And now after the battle, after the victory... The second or the third part, remember to obey God's commands and to give him the glory. It's kind of like that no dumb moment, but we're going to see they don't really do this. So this is verses 17 to the end of the chapter, and then we'll, we'll walk our way through it. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that were sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things. And make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They're given over to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat, fell down under it, it collapsed. Then the people went up into the city, every man right before him, and took, of, and took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both men and women, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, I love this part, we'll get into a minute, Joshua's wisdom, he's such a smart guy. Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot father's household and all that she had so she dwells in israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom joshua sent to spy out jericho and then joshua charged them at that time saying cursed cursed be the man before the lord who rises up and builds a city jericho he shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest he shall set up its gates 
So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the land. So, at the beginning, this city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. By all means, don't touch anything, abstain from the accursed things. Okay, the entire city was devoted to God. Everything was, de- was dedicated to the Lord. The people, the houses, the animals, all the spoils of war. And he, God, can do whatever he pleased with it. It was given over to him first. In this very first victory in Canaan, Jericho was presented as God as the first fruits of the victory to come. Now, that we can bring in the concept of tithing, giving to the Lord the first that were given unto him as a recognition that it all comes from him and to bless him and to honor him. Now, Deuteronomy 20 tells us that ordinarily the soldiers shared in the spoils of war, but not at Jericho. Everything in Jericho belonged to the Lord and was put into his treasury. We're going to learn the next chapter when we get to it, chapter 7, that Achan, this is the commandment, this is the direction that he disobeyed. When the walls of the city fell down, it appears that the section of the wall that held Rahab's house didn't fall. Remember, her house sat on top of the wall. So you have a wall, 30 to 40 feet high, two of them, beams were laid across the top of the wall, then her house was built on top of that. Now the wall of the city, the walls of the city fell down flat, except this one section. Except this one portion of the wall which stood. There was no need for the spies to look for that red cord. Her house was intact. It was standing on top of the wall. When the spies made their covenant with Rahab, they didn't exactly know what God was going to do, but there was faith, there was trust involved. God saved and protected Rahab because of her faith. We already said that, Hebrews eleven thirty one, And because she led her family to trust in Jehovah, they were also saved. Now Rahab and her relatives, it says they were put outside the camp. And this was done initially because they were unclean Gentiles. And in Numbers, outside the camp was a place designated for the unclean. The men of the family, of Rahab's family, they had to be circumcised to become sons of the covenant. And all the family had to submit to the law of Moses. Now, is that not a picture of God's grace? Not only to Rahab, but also all of her loved ones. God chose her. God loves her. God allows this harlot to marry an Israelite man and to become part of the genealogy, the lineage of Christ himself. If that's not grace, I don't know what is. Now, a lot of people will say, and there is some agreement to it, verse 21 is a very disturbing verse. And they destroyed all that was in the city, man and woman, young and old. God commanded every living thing in Jericho to be killed. Well, isn't our God a God of mercy? It's one thing to go and kill the, the, the soldiers, to kill the men that are trying to kill you, but why the women? Why the children? Why the animals? Well, this isn't a new commandment. The Lord actually gave this commandment to Moses years ago. Again, in Deuteronomy 20, the Lord made a distinction between attacking cities that were afar off 
in the wilderness and attacking cities in Canaan in the land of promise. And actually Deuteronomy 20 verses 16 to 18 says this, but of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as, as an inheritance, the promised land, the Canaanites, you shall utterly, or sorry, it gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. Nothing. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God had commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So, why? Well, for one thing, the Canaanites, they were wicked people. They were horribly wicked. And God didn't want His holy people to be contaminated by these unholy nations. We shouldn't forget that God put Israel into the world to be a channel of His blessing. Again, if you're here with us on Sunday mornings, Genesis 12, Abram, bless, you, bless those who bless you. There's a blessing involved. He's using and identifying these people as a channel of His blessing and grace to go out to the world. If you look through the Old Testament, you will see time and time again Satan doing everything he can do to pollute the Jewish nation and to pre prevent the birth of the Messiah. You can even look over Nehemiah that when Jewish men married pagan women and began to worship pagan gods, it was a complete threat to the purposes that God had for His people. In the prophet Malachi, we read that God wants a holy seed so that His Holy Son could come to be the Savior of the world. Again, one of my favorite commentators, G. Campbell Morgan, says that God is perpetually at war with sin. Perpetually at war with sin. And that's the entire explanation of the extermination of the Canaanites. The Jews did not fully obey this commandment in later years. We're going to get to it eventually in this book. And it led to a national defilement and a correction by the Lord. The book of Judges would not be in the Bible if the nation of Israel had obeyed this. There'd be no need for the Judges. But there's a second consideration on why all the living beings would be destroyed and killed. The people in the land had been given plenty of opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord, just like Rahab and her family had done. God patiently endured the evil of the Canaanites from the time of Abraham. Again, back in Genesis, Genesis 15, all the way to now, through Moses, or through Moses to now, a period of 400 years. From the Exodus to the crossing of the Jordan was another 40 years, and the Canaanites, they understood what was going on. They knew. Remember, their hearts melted with fear. They understood what was happening. Yet they chose not to believe in faith. Every miracle that God performed, every victory that God gave His people was a witness to the people of the land that they preferred to go in their sin and reject God's mercy. We should remember that these historical events that are written for our learning, we're going to get to that point in a minute, but remember that these things are for us today. And in the destruction of Jericho and its entire population, God is, letting, God is telling us that He will tolerate no compromise in the lives of His people. 
He's a jealous God. He loves you so much that he wants you just for himself. And if you accept him, if you choose him, live for him. It says in verse 24 that they burned the city with fire. In Deuteronomy 4, the, Moses spoke the word saying, The Lord your God is a consuming fire. It's repeated in Hebrews 12. But Moses' warning to the Jewish people was against idolatry and the danger of following religious practices of the Canaanites. And in Deuteronomy, Moses added a phrase that he is a jealous God. He will not allow us to divide our love and our service between him and the false gods of this world. We cannot serve two masters. We can't. Jericho was a wicked city, and sin is only fuel for the holy wrath of God, the judgment of God. Even after he had burned the city, Joshua put a curse on it. This would warn any of the Jews or Rahab's descendants who might be tempted to rebuild the city that God had destroyed. And if you like cross-references a lot, you should jot down 1 Kings 16. Someone tried to rebuild Jericho. The curse was fulfilled by the evil king Ahab. And as promised, back in Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 and 9, God magnified Joshua's name in the land. God was with Joshua. We as God's servants, we should never magnify ourselves. If the Lord magnifies us, then we need to be careful to give Him the glory. The battle of Jericho was a spiritual battle. It was not a physical war. It had to be... The, the hearts had to be conquered in the lives of the Israelites. Their swords, their spears, their, sh their shields could do nothing if their hearts were not conquered before the Lord. Now, as I mentioned this a minute ago, we're going to read the verse now. Romans 15.4 says this, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Stop there. This has been written before, so we have to learn from it. Okay, That's what this is saying that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Might have hope. So if we already have the victory in Christ, if we're fighting from victory, not for victory, if we defeat the enemy by faith, and if we continue to give God the glory, should be no problems, right? But yet, we find ourselves discouraged. We find ourselves in, in times of being despaired. Hopelessness. Well, this verse in Romans says that we might have hope. And we have hope by remembering the things that have been written down. Joshua 6 was a spiritual battle. How much of your life is a spiritual battle? How much of your life is your flesh warring against the Spirit? Your desires fighting against God's desires. I'm sorry, you lose. He wins. That's how it goes. And if you're finding yourself being discouraged, hopeless, I would really ask, how are you in the spiritual battle? Are you, try, are you clawing for victory? Are you, are you exhausted trying to be vict find victory in your life? Stop fighting in your flesh. And allow your spirit and allow the spirit of the Lord that lives in you 
to bring that promise of victory into your life. If you're not fighting with faith, if you're not wielding your faith, then what are you wielding? Is it a spiritualized version of your flesh? Then really it's just flesh. And when you do experience that victory of the Lord, don't touch it. Say, thank you, Father, praise you, God, and move on. Because if you claim that victory, if you say, look what I've done, look what I did, you've already lost. He that began this good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Your salvation has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Him. So when you experience victory in your life, praise God. When you're finding yourself completely discouraged in life, pray to God. Say, Lord, I need you. I need you. Joshua gives, gives an amazing example of this brilliant military strategist, this brilliant commander, putting that all aside and saying, okay, Lord, we're going to do it your way. By all definition of, of worldly wisdom and counsel, Joshua messed up. He didn't do proper warfare. He walked around a city and he screamed and blew some instruments. But in the eyes of the Lord, the Lord that is going, the Spirit of the Lord that is going to and fro around this world, examining the hearts of men, looking for those that he can be faithful to, this is exactly the battle plan that, that showed that faithfulness. We all know that there are going to be Jerichos in our life. There's going to be those, those defended, dug-in fortifications, those impossible hurdles in our life. Don't try to conquer them in your flesh. Wield your faith and watch the Lord's victory be true in your life. Amen? Let's pray.